At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, live from Post 9 here at the New York Stock Exchange. Front and center this hour, the tough week for tech. NASDAQ on track to break its three-week winning streak. And all that is yields fall further on fresh concerns about the state of the economy. The Investment Committee assessing what all of that means to your money. We'll do it now. Joining me for the hour, Josh Brown, Steve Weiss, Jenny Harrington, Jim Labenthal. Let's check the markets. Carl just told you, S&P. Uh, getting back positive. NASDAQ is positive as well. Dow's trying to get there as well. It's uh, down by just 44 points, uh, Jim, on what's been, you know, more, I guess, if you want to call it bad news for the economy, right? Uh, Jobless claims up, revisions up huge. Makes you wonder whether the labor market has been worse than we've realized. Data this week has been tough, as you know. How do we figure uh, what happens next with the jobs report now looming. You presented that in such a measured tone and it reflects how I feel, which is which is measured. And by that, I mean the following. Yeah, the data this week, Scott, has not been good, but it hasn't been awful either. Let me explain a little more on this, because when we were last on, I talked about the ISM services and how important that was to me. It came in yesterday worse than expected. So that's bad. Right. But then it's still expansionary territory, 51 and a half, whatever it was. And that's good. And I look at today's jobless claims, obviously worse than expected. So you don't like that from an economy point of view. But perspective here really matters. In the 56 years that initial weekly jobless claims have been uh, collected, the average has been 370,000. That's over the last 56 years. So 
228,000, and I think last uh, week's was revised up to 246. Yes, that's bad in that it's higher, but we're so far below what historical norms is that I can't, as an investor, take that data and say, oh my goodness, I'm supposed to do something. I'm, I, I can't take that data and say, I'm supposed to sell stocks. You know, Jenny, this, this smells to me, if you look at the market action today, you know, a day after Mester suggested above 5% and stay there for a long time and Bullard today, financial stress readings are relatively low. I mean, the market is not buying anything that the Fed is selling. If you look at Fed funds futures, January of 24, it's 4.1%. That's like 100 basis points below where, you know, the, the, the Fed may be. So this smacks to me of, yeah, whatever, you guys are not going to be raising. You may not even be able to raise in May. And if you do, then you are done. I think that's right. And I think the yeah, whatever is really critical because as a portfolio manager, when I think about, so right now, for example, I have three potential new buys on, on my watch list. And when I'm thinking about like, how do I make the decision to pull the trigger? I'm totally yeah, whatever on the Fed. And what I actually care about are earnings next week, because I think with the Fed is kind of done for now. Maybe we get 25 basis points, maybe we don't. I think everyone's increasingly convinced, at least I hope they are, that they're not gonna turn tail, pivot, and start cutting anytime soon because I think that's an unrealistic um, hope to have. And so what are we left with? We're left with earnings. And that really takes the Fed a bit out of the equation. Weiss, you know, un unless you think that the labor market, which is the last thing, right, it's the lagging indicator, right, through this whole thing, and that now these are the signs, and maybe they were, there, they were there for longer than we realized, given the revisions and claims, that the labor market is about to roll over in a bigger way. Yeah, I think the labor market is going to, I don't know if it's completely roll over because people still have uh, memories of how difficult it was to hire people. So until they see more than the negative data that we've seen actually impacting their business, it's gonna to be tougher for them to let go. We've seen technology do it, but technology was not unique in hiring more people than needed, but unique in hiring so many more people than were needed. So they're the first to go. I think you'll see others follow suit. But look, it's uh, what we're looking at, you know, to Jim's comments, I mean, it's a moment in time. You can take a look on a daily basis about data, and let's just go through it. What's gone down over this past month? Used car prices, retail sales, industrial production, durable goods, ISM, consumer sentiment, factory orders, jolts, Costco's news, and then look what's gone up. Wages, crude inventory, and jobless claims. All those are the same thing. They're telling you that the Fed action, the tightening cycle, is just starting to hit. So if you think that this is the end of it, Jim, because that's where these, the, you know, to your point that ISM is down, but I didn't see you, but it's actually good news that it's down. Everything can't be good news. It's just the beginning of a, what's going to be a precipitous decline in the economy abetted by a tightening credit cycle that the Fed didn't count on from what we saw. They saw the credit cycle tightening, but not to this extent. And then throw in commercial real estate. So... To me, there is no other side to this market argument at all, period, end of story. Because you've seen multiple expansion. If you just reset to what makes common sense, you've seen major multiple expansion, while you've seen earnings estimates so far go down 7% for the first quarter. First quarter, you'll see more as we go through the year. So yes, so you should sell some stocks. 
So, Jimmy, I'll, I'll come back to you. Um, Weiss is, you know, taking the onus off you yelling at me <laughs> again. But please, I mean, you, you have a, a retort of yeah, sorts uh, for that. Um, yeah, let me let me cut out the emotion and just go to what I think is salient. The last thing he said about earnings revision, Steve, I mean, that's it's a fact, right, that that earnings for the market overall have come down. Um, what's also a fact is that this is a great stock pickers market. I can I can call out a lot of stocks, and I'm about to, where the earnings revisions are going higher, and that's where I want to be. And Steve, you know me, you know I'm a stock picker, so none of this surprise you. But take a look at Transocean's earnings revisions. Take a look at Wynn Resorts earnings revisions. Uh, take take a look at uh, at Cleveland Cliffs. These things, some of them are going up. Now I will tell you, I don't want to be in the market overall. I want to be in the stocks that I pick where I see earnings are getting better. And you can do that. You can do that in this market. Josh Brown, uh, let's get you in here. Um, Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson today said market is signaling to stay defensive. Uh, a lot of talk about the yield curve re-steepening, uh, right? That's happened uh, in, a, in, a, in a pretty big way. We talked about the data is, you know, raising some alarm bells. And those revisions today on, on the jobless claims leading into tomorrow certainly are interesting. Yeah, if you look at the shorter end of the yield curve, the one month, the two month, the three month, all of those are up versus the start of the year. The entire rest of the of the curve, anything from six months out to 30 years are now lower than the start of the year. And the big story of this week is yields crashing. It's really been breathtaking. The volatility uh, in yields has just been absolutely off the charts, which is not something that I, I expected to see. Um, but this is where we are. And if you think about how that filters through to the stock market, look at the two best performing factors of the year, growth uh, uh, and quality. Specifically over the last month, um, growth and quality are up 4 and 3% respectively over the last 30 days. The two worst factors are volatility, uh, excuse me, value down one and a half and yield down one. Why is that happening? I think uh, to, to Steve's comments, you're probably going to have this rolling credit crunch in the economy get worse and worse as we get into the summer. It's going to become a lot more ap apparent that things are not quite as strong as you would have thought, given the pace of Fed rate hikes this year. Maybe the, the, the silver lining is, hey, they finally got their way they could stop. Um, and if you want to play that optimism, maybe the best way to do that, continue to do that is in tech. But if you think about what stocks uh, comprise growth and quality, and that trend continuing. Look at healthcare, XLV. Look at this rip off the March 9th lows. Absolutely incredible. Those are growth companies and high quality. And then we look at the FANGs, and I know we're going to talk about those in, in a minute, um, but those are also emblematic of growth and quality. So I think that trade can continue to work. If you look at value, you look at yield, unfortunately, there's a lot of companies in those indices that need to roll debt or have maturities facing them or might be uh, un unfortunately prone to a credit crunch. And I think that is how the market is separating itself along those two lines. The companies that do not require a lot of economic growth or the ability to tap the debt markets are going to continue to be the ones that you want to bias yourself towards in this current environment. Yeah, Jenny, I was going to ask you whether, you know, this week was the week in which bad news became bad news again. But then you have the price action in the market today, which suggests that maybe it thinks that the jobs report tomorrow is also going to be a clunker. Yeah. And that, again, for all of the bullards 
who are out there saying that credit's unlikely to tighten enough to send the economy into a recession, which he said as part of his remarks today, the market is calling you know what on all of that in thinking that the picture is going to deteriorate more and the Fed's not going to be able to do what it says. And what it says is irrelevant. It's what it does that matters. So I think that's like bad news, good news, where we've, where we've kind of had clearly delineated lines on when bad news was good news and good news was bad news before. I just finished writing our quarterly client letter, and the theme, if anything, is cross-currents. But then I take these cross-currents, which is exactly that, right? And I see them crashing into each other. And so even listening to Josh and Steve talk, like the practical version of that is Steve saying, hey, there could be a credit crunch. Josh is saying, have you seen yields come down? Both of those are true. But what happens when yields come down? When yields come down, when inflation comes down, valuations go up, right? So Steve's also saying valuations have gone up, but you know what? They've come down from 21 times last year. Well, they need to be supported, though, by earnings. A hundred percent. But so they, so let's, I mean, if we want to jump away from that, I'm going to bet you that earnings for 2023 don't end up being as dismal as the worst case expectations could, expectations could be. And I think that as we get into the next three and four months, we might actually see expectations for 2024 start to solidify. And that's where you said you need a base to work off of. Based on what? Like, why would you expect that to happen? I'm not saying they won't, but why do you think they will? Okay, because you have material costs coming down. You have foreign exchange working in favor. um, You have China reopening. You have supply chains really normalizing, right? You actually have low bases in some companies set. So you have some wind at the back of earnings. But then really you take that idea of like, what's going to win out? Right? What's going to be good news? What's going to be bad news? Where are the currents going to hit? And where are they going to end up? And I'm starting to, I've been like pretty negative, um, I don't know, for a year and a half now. And I'm starting to feel okay. And part of that is because we're seeing yields come down. So with the 10-year at 3.3%, suddenly stocks become kind of attractive. Yeah, I know, but yields are coming down for the, the wrong reason, so to speak. For sure. But they're still coming down. And when they come down, you can justify an 18 times multiple on the market more easily than you could when the tenure was at four and Weiss, a half. Weiss, take that on. Do you, do you agree with that comment from Jenny? I, I agree that you can justify it more easily, but I don't think you can justify it. You know, under, ah, I agree. under what I'm hearing, what I'm hearing from, from Jim and Jenny is that, hey, you know, look, stocks have come down and maybe it's time to get to get interested in them because the future's bright, but you're losing the valuation umbrella. So it's not going to stop at 18 times. I just go back to it. Do you think that this is it for the Fed impact on companies, on the economy, on credit? If you think this is it, then that's fine. But what I'm saying is it's the beginning and it's going to keep going lower. So it's not just whistling by the graveyard. It's getting a shovel and living in the graveyard at this point. So look, Jim. the world will so, eventually come back. Eventually, the market will go higher. But I just think right now, that's not the case, that you're still Jim. at 18 yeah. times above what the long-term valuation is. It's, it's not just multiples that I'm talking to. And again, I want to put this in the context of individual stocks because that's this what is this market is. Okay? Mm-hmm. And I can give a great example to this. And this is just factual. Two weeks ago, Greenbrier, it's a company I've owned off and on for 
15 years, all right? This is as cyclical a company, Scott, as you can possibly be. They bend metal into the shape of rail cars. Two weeks ago, they pre-announced a gargantuan order and a huge uh, beat on earnings they're going to report on Monday. This is as cyclical as it gets. When you are in recession or headed into recession, what happens is railroads pull back on traffic. They park rail cars in storage to rust in the outside air. They don't order new rail cars, which is what's happening right now. And I can go through a lot of other examples like this. So the point that Steve is making, I, Steve, I hear you from a macroeconomic point of view. Same. And there's validity in the aggregate. Where Jenny and I live is in individual stocks. And I know, but I think everybody on I, I think everybody on this show, with all due respect, is is a stock picker. I mean, it's not like the the. The, the plays that we hear about every day, or I, I, I bought the, uh, you know, this ETF and I bought the S&P and yep. everybody is, is a stock just picker. Perspective. I'm just giving the perspective of where in particular my bullish comes from and bullishness comes from. It's from looking at the individual stocks and what they're telling me. So, I can't wait to see what Ed Bassett well, says think, next week. Oh, I think this is where, I hey, think this Scott, is where it gets really like, you're Yeah, hold on, hang, hang on, on, I got you in a minute. You're toggling between two okay. time frames. So if you take a little bit longer perspective, you can say, look, in a year and change, I know that Kohl's is going to be up, right? And, and Steve, this gets into our conversation from last week, where you have some stocks that are up 20%, some stocks that are down 20%. Same sector, same businesses. So you can pick those apart, and suddenly opportunity is being created. But in the near term, the market might shake it out. You want to be patient. So we're really struggling with balancing two different time frames all the time right now. Weiss, quick, because i got to get to Josh on something important. Yeah, all I'd say is you can cherry pick names, and none of the names that, that Jim put out there are, are, I would say, just widely followed in terms of the economy market. You can always cherry pick names, number one. And number two, everything doesn't decline at once. It takes a while. It's not, we wake point. up, bang, every company's coming out. So it takes time, and I'm telling you that the direction is lower for companies and their earnings. That's evidence. So, Josh, to, to you on, on this notion of what's going to work. Um, you mentioned Fang. You bought more Alphabet. Can you tell us and our viewers why? Yeah. So uh, I think Alphabet technically is breaking out, but I, I didn't buy it as a trade. I've been in the stock for years. Um, my average cost is significantly lower than where it is now. So it's very rare that I would do something like this. But I just don't think I'm big enough in Google, uh, given what I think could happen over the course of this decade. I think AI had its iPhone moment this, uh, this spring. Um, the adoption is completely off the charts. And the notion that open AI is gonna own the whole thing or that Microsoft and Nvidia are gonna be the only uh, large companies that benefit, I think is absurd. It flies in the face of hundreds of years of technological innovation. And to count Google out would be to severely misunderstand the investments that they've been making for years and years. They bought DeepMind, um, Google Brain. These things have existed. What they have not been as good at is showing it off and incorporating it into the tools that we all use each day, like billions of, of, of usages. So that's what's changing. Uh, Sundar Pichai gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal today. Um, they're not just talking about it, they're actually doing something about it. They are bringing the AI teams closer and scaling so that when you're using Gmail and you're using search, it becomes very apparent that AI tools are going to make those products better and not just better for no reason, but better for revenue. And, you know, there's a lot of excitement about Bing incorporating uh, ChatGPT, and I get it. I've been playing with it, and, and I'm obsessed with it. Uh, but the truth is, 
Bing has a tiny amount of market share. They're scratching and clawing to get a quarter of a percent. Um, Google has 89% of US search and 94% of worldwide search. I really don't think that that's changing in any material way. So now that they're getting serious, the question becomes, is that priced into the stock? And the good news is not even close. From a valuation standpoint, Google is selling at a 23 times PE, um, a 22 times price to free cash flow, 15 times enterprise value to, to EBITDA. All of these metrics are lower than uh, Google's three-year, five-year, and 10-year median numbers. Um, so this is not a situation where the stock has already run up uh, because of what's about to happen. In the meanwhile, one of the most profitable companies in the world, they've maintained a profit margin of 53%, 10 quarters in a row, going back to Q2 2020. So yes, margins are down about 3%. We understand that. They've lost $700 billion in market cap already and the earnings fall off is nowhere near close to the valuation fall off. So if you look at the five biggest stocks in the S&P, Apple, Microsoft, Google, uh, Amazon, NVIDIA, all of them are up 19% year to date. That's what's driving the overall market. But out of those five stocks, Alphabet is the only one selling at a forward PE below the S&P, certainly below the other four. So I think there's room here. I think they're gonna get AI right I think it's going to play a significant role in how Google gets its mojo back. Sergey and Larry are back in the fold. There's a lot to like here. I don't know that it's gonna reward me overnight, but again, this is a long-term mm -hmm. investment that I'm in, and I'm, I'm counting on them to capitalize on what I think is the biggest new technology wave we've seen since the late 90s when mobile and the internet came along. Got you, so Weiss, you're selling Meta um, but you do own Alphabet, too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Josh gave a really good good dive, deep dive, on, on why he likes the stock, why he still thinks that the best days are way ahead of the stock and where the valuation is. What's your thought? I, I agree a thousand percent with what he said, which is why I haven't sold Alphabet. I sold Meta. It, it was a trade. It was a momentum trade. And I think largely the tech trade is over. Uh, particularly as you see a shift into into healthcare, uh, I bought United Healthcare on the uh, on the CMS news. Uh, I think people realize that they are recession resistant in some cases, recession proof. So I think that's where the money is going to go. Momentum. Why start. do you think the tech trade's over? Well, I mean, the market action, even though Nasdaq is going to break a likely, or at least may break its its winning streak here, um, even the selling this week has been extraordinarily measured as if people have been waiting right. for the dip, and the moment they get the dip, they're gonna buy the dip. And I'm talking about names like the Apples, the NVIDIAs of the world, and some of these other big names. NVIDIA, you know, as I mentioned here, one of those stocks that's had a nice run along with some of the other mega caps. Why do you think it's over? Yeah, because uh, uh, momentum cuts both ways. And if I'm right on the markets, I have no idea what the jobs number is going to be tomorrow. You could see a rally of 5% across the board. If you get the right number, I can't tell you what scenario that is. But momentum is, uh, cuts both ways. And I believe in my, my market view, you're going to start seeing the market declining again. I'm, I'm no different than, than Mike Wilson in that regard. And when it starts to decline, you'll see these stocks that have these big moves for no fundamental reason, start to decline. Why has Apple had the move that it has? Has business gotten better? Have we seen anything that, that you can grab 
and hold on to and say, okay, I get why it's up from the lows no, like No, but you know why? Because it hasn't Nvidia. gotten demonstrably worse. It hasn't gotten demonstrably right. worse. It has an amazing balance sheet. And at the current time, right. these stocks are viewed once again like they have been in the past as so-called safety trades for obvious reasons. Right. And, and Apple, I think, will actually be a pretty good relative former uh, through the rest of the year because of the franchise, because of the embedded you know, customer base, et cetera. But others, like NVIDIA, I don't think you'll see the lows again, but you just can't justify those valuations. And most of the people, my guess, my broad guess, is that a lot of people that bought it bought the momentum, didn't buy the fundamentals, which are good, but they're overpriced. So these aren't bad right. companies. It's just the valuation right now. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. I'm um, just looking at three moves that uh, the committee that we still have to get to. Weiss, you sold a couple things. Uh, Jenny sold something and bought something else. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to do that along with our call of the day. It's coming up next. See, the Dow is uh, still down 13, though. Uh, S&P, though, gone positive, as has the NASDAQ. Let's talk some moves. Jenny Harrington, you sold AbbVie. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting one um, because we still have ownership from other committee members. Right. Give me that first, and I'll, I'll talk about this the is, one you bought. This is where I say you always need to say, starting from today, what do I see from here? And so I took a really fresh look at AbbVie, and I saw nothing compelling. I saw revenue growth that's lackluster, earnings growth that's lackluster. I've owned this since 2019 at about $70 a share back when it had a five plus percent yield. And I said to myself, would I want this as a new buy in my portfolio today? And it was just too lackluster with an only 3.6% yield. You know, my objective is to have a 5% yield overall for the portfolio, so it was way below that. So with cash yielding almost 4.5%, that became less, it just became less important to hold in the portfolio. And I figured if I can hold cash risk-free, why own AbbVie where there is risk with only a 3.6% yield and nothing that I see compelling enough to drive those shares more than 20% higher? You I want, feel, sorry, you, yeah, go ahead. You want to answer the question, why own AbbVie, given all of yeah. those concerns that Jenny just well articulated because you do, you do own it. I do. It's a stabilizer in my portfolio. And I think Jenny knows exactly what I mean. And any portfolio manager will. Like, you can't have your portfolio be all of these high flyers, these story stocks, Boeing, Paramount, Cleveland Clips. You can't do that. All right. It'll just, it'll send you into schizophrenia. Something like AbbVie, that 3.6% dividend. Boeing's a high like. flyer. Uh, I mean, I know it's having a good year, I, I, but I, I, I right. mean. But, the, but volatility is what I mean. You know, the, like the, like the things that I are going to move around. Um, but Look, I also think that with AbbVie in particular, there's a story here still of the pipeline refresh uh, that's going on. And I, 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 I think there's more legs to that. There, it might be. And that was a big consideration. And I thought to myself, if I'm leaving money on the table, how much am I leaving on the table? And I figured I might leave 10 percent on. Um, mm. But it's not this isn't a negative call on AbbVie. This is just me saying I can make this money work harder in my portfolio. Well, it's not a positive call on it. I mean, you No, but it's not you, saying I'm selling it because I think there's danger and I think it's an imminent risk of going down. That is not why I sold it. I just said if I need to maintain a 5% yield, I can find better places to put my my money right now. Like Flex LNG, which is what right. you bought. Right. So AbbVie was a pretty big position, three and a half to four percent in most portfolios, sold that. 
added a 2% position in Flex LNG. Mm -hmm. But remember, I sold Unum, Foot Locker, Navient earlier in the year, so I actually still have a big cash pile in my pocket. So I chipped off 2% from that cash plus AbbVie and bought this Flex LNG, which is totally so far out there on the risk spectrum. I know half of you watching are like, eh, tankers, I've been burned in them, I'll never touch them again, they're the worst, she's crazy. But what they have is they have 13 LNG tankers. They spent the last year optimizing their debt so that they could really focus on the dividend. And when you go to their investor presentation, it says earnings belong to shareholders. And they do not have a set dividend policy, but they're really, really aggressively returning the cash to the shareholders. So here's what you've got. You've got $330 million of cash on their balance sheet. You've got all 13 of those ships fully leased through 2023 at higher rates than they expected to, to have in the first place. Almost the entire portfolio is leased through 2028. You have global LNG volumes that were 5% higher last year, expected to be higher this year. You got $3 of earnings coming to you and a stock trading at 10 times earnings. Does, um, I mean, I don't know, this may be a yeah. dumb question, but does LNG, does natural gas at two bucks factor in it here at all? It doesn't really, right? Because it's, it's almost like if you think about the old school MLP pipelines, as long as people are using LNG, it needs to be shipped here and there. Oh, sorry, I probably should have said it has an 11% yield on it, too. Oh, but yeah. Yes, oh, that, by the way. That. But you know Talk what about else? burying the lead. The reason I started looking at this, and I've been working on this for at least six, at least six months, worrying about how safe is it, how much geopolitical risk is there. But the reason I started looking at the LNG shippers in the first place was saying, with Russia-Ukraine mm -hmm. screwing up global transportation routes for all LNG, what does that do? It decreases the efficiency of shipping. If shipping efficiency is decreased, then day rates on the boats must go up. And that supports the average lease for each for each. Boat. So the price of natural gas has no bearing on the performance of a company like this is essentially it what you're really saying. It really doesn't. And I wasn't sure that that was true. So that's why six months ago when I started watching it, I was really, really paying attention to, you know, are they like the MLP? Are they like the pipeline companies where technically they don't have exposure, but they still trade with oil? And what I've seen from this is it's had almost no relationship to the price of LNG, which, as you know, has been super volatile for the yeah, past year. Not a massive year. market cap, one point seven and a half mm -hmm. billion. Dollars uh, looks to us okay. Weiss, back to you. You sold Deer. Link sold that last Tuesday. Jimmy still owns it, and you sold Key Corp. But tell me, Deer, why did you sell Deer? Yeah, Stephanie had a much better sale than I did. Um, look, as I said in the show the other day, that um, small equipment sales are not going well. Large equipment are going well. But and this goes into the reason actually where I why I sold Key also. Uh, construction is not going to grind to a halt, but it's going to slow dramatically. Where When they beat last quarter, it was because of the construction business that they had, which is not a huge business, but it's big enough. So I just think in this economic environment, on highly cyclical stocks, you just don't want to be there. Further, if the Fed is successful in taking down inflation, and they are, it's come down, not nearly enough to go off their path, but that's going to bring down the price of of basically food. So farmers will get squeezed from having to pay higher interest rates on buying equipment while they're seeing their prices go down on the goods they bring to market and then the economic environment. So to me, it's a triple negative. You know, I, I made money in the trade the first time. I'd like to tell you I made money on it this time. I didn't. Uh, so I want to get out and I got out much higher than where it is now before I got really hurt. And I think it goes lower from here still. All right, um, we are going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're also going to talk today about the state of dividends. 
not just because Jenny is here. We're wondering, are they growing? Are they at risk? Our Bob Pisani has done a deep dive for us today. He's going to give us the details there. Our chart of the day as well is one retail stock that we need to tell you about, too. We're back after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. I'm Seema Modi. Here's your news update at this hour. A string of tornadoes ripping through the country in recent weeks marks one of the busiest starts to tornado season. The National Weather Service reporting at least 478 tornadoes this year across 25 states as of Wednesday. Experts say the increase in storms was fueled by a warmer than usual winter across the south. And Honda recalling more than half a million CRVs. The recall covers 2007 to 2011 CRVs in cold weather states due to safety concerns around road salt accumulation. Corrosion from the salt could cause suspension issues or parts to detach in older models, increasing the risk of a crash. Impacted owners will be notified by mail beginning May 8th. A pair of Air Jordans worn by Michael Jordan himself are about to set a record. Sotheby's is auctioning off the shoes worn by Jordan in the 1998 NBA Finals, and they already have an all-time record-breaking offer of $1.8 million. The shoes signed by Jordan are part of an ongoing sports auction, including jerseys worn by Pele and even the ball from this year's Super Bowl winning kick. Scott, back to you. Wow. I think I just saw yesterday a bat used by Babe Ruth sold for like yes. a million and a half dollars. So the market for sports memorabilia is still amazing. Seema, thank you. All right. That's Seema Modi. Dividend payouts reaching a record high in the first quarter. But is that boom starting to slow? Our Bob Pisani is following the money for us at Post 9. I saw your email to all of us today asking the question, are dividends still growing? Are they at risk? You know this space well. What do you say? Well, I see the numbers are still growing, but 2023 is going to be a very challenging year. So let me show you the good news. What's 1.7% dividend yield worth? You know what it's worth? I'll show you the numbers here. It's worth $146 billion. That's how much money was paid out last year. Look at that. That's a record for the first quarter of 2023 on a per quarter basis. So these numbers keep going up. It's terrific news. And we've had big companies in the first quarter raise their dividends. So Diamondback, Oracle, Applied Materials has look at these numbers, not 2%, not raising 3%, double digit gains for some of these big companies that are out there. Now, here's what I'm a little concerned about. Remember what the game is with dividends. It really depends on cash flow. That's what you that's the mother's milk for all the dividends. Cash flow may be under some pressures because of the uncertain economic environment, particularly banks. Financials are about 15 percent of all of the uh, dividends that are paid out. And obviously, there's going to be some net interest income pressure there that might pressure the ability to increase the dividends. With that said, people say, and Jenny, I know you're very big on this. Why do why bother with a 1.7 percent dividend? We don't care about that. This is a critical aspect of total returns. Here's the numbers. Average yearly return on the S&P going back 100 years is 10 percent. But when you reinvest the dividends, you get the compounding from the reinvestment. As a result of that, the dividends as a percentage of total returns on a long-term basis, look at that number, 39%. So people say, guys, why care? Why bother 1.7%? 
total return is almost 40% related to dividends. Wow. This goes to the real critical aspect of financial literacy, understanding compounding growth, understanding reinvesting dividends. The money starts working for you, and over longer periods, the numbers get bigger and bigger and bigger. Jenny? You know what I like to joke about sometimes? That dividend investing is like the easiest side hustle you could have. If you take, if you take half a million dollars, right, and I know that's a lot of money, and put, but say you're retired and you've got half a million dollars and you can put it in not necessarily the S&P dividend with 1.7%, but a high dividend, let's say you can get 5%, that's 25 grand a year that's just coming to you and you don't need to do anything, you don't need to think about it. And one of the things when you were showing those big rates of 23 and 24% increases, on average, the S&P dividend yields, they don't grow it that much, right? They grow maybe like 5%-ish on average a year and they almost never go down. And Bob, the number of times in my career managing a dividend portfolio that I've heard the death of dividends is coming, guess what? It never happens. And I was just looking at Edyard Denny's numbers on the dividend, on the total dividends paid for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years. There's never a decline. So it's a really wonderful way to just know that with all the market ups and downs, with all the ebbs and flows, there's some component mm-hmm. just coming to you, just landing because, in your pocket. Yeah, because, Bob, companies are loath to cut their dividends. That's exactly right. Loathed. And that, this is why I like dividends over buybacks. Dividends mm-hmm. are cash in hand, really real money and companies are very reluctant. This quarter, only seven companies cut their dividend. 123 raised them. 123 raised, only seven cut. Buybacks, they can stop on a dime. You know that. All of a sudden, they're gone. But dividends, they tend to stick around. And as we think about dividends potentially slowing for next year, that that, in the U.S., they're loathe to cut because the shares get slapped if they do. And that's because people really rely on it. Mm -hmm. So when Chevron or IBM or AT&T, Okay, I'll leave AT&T out. Or Verizon, when they're planning those dividend payments out, they're considering, or the banks, a myriad of different investment environments. When Chevron, Chevron's raised their dividend for over 60 years straight at this point. And when they do that, they're saying oil could be at 150, oil could be at 20. In any of those environments, we can pay this out. These are your picks here we're putting on the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, Easterly. You want yeah. to just talk, I don't want to go through every single one, but sure. we'll flash them on the screen. But Easterly is, is interesting. I don't, you know, we don't talk about it. Uh, no. Often, if at all, but why this? Easterly is really uh, interesting. Besides the obvious, eight percent near eight percent yield. yield. So, in this case, this is a real estate investment trust that owns government properties, right? FBI buildings, DEA buildings. They're not government offices necessarily. They're they're properties with incredibly high barrier to entry, and the rents are backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. So, I was actually talking to the CEO and CFO last week. They're dying over the fact that this stock is lumped in with office REITs and is down like thirty percent from it's high. Meanwhile, it has an 8% dividend yield. And this is one where you can really just sit back, relax, rest easy at night. I can't even imagine what would need to go wrong in this economy to shake that dividend loose. Okay, so we'll watch that. And then, you know, you have a sort of a similarly sticky, if you will, the postal realty trust, right? Right. right. You're not talking about commercial real estate in terms of office REITs. Right. And so this is really interesting. When I started researching postal realty, I don't know, a year and a half ago, I thought, ooh, post offices, those are those are you know going out of business. But as it turns out, Amazon really only works on the backbone of the US Postal Service. So this too, this is a small, multi-generation, family-run company based in Long Island, and they own post offices, which are also backed, the leases are backed by the full faith and credit of the US government. So in a high CPI environment, as their rents roll, they're actually bumping up the rents. But these are both businesses that are just slow, steady, really safe. 
Wow, seeing a nice move there. Bob, give you the last word uh, well, before we bounce. Just like uh, you want to own companies that are tending to, own, to have earnings growth, you want to own companies that tend to be increasing their dividend. Many people write to me and say, oh, th- these are high dividend yielding stocks. I'm therefore going to buy them. That's not necessarily the right way to go Absolutely. at all. You want to look for growth. Your idea of owning government properties where their government leases on them, that's fantastic because those are long-term leases. Can I say one thing? Josh made a really funny joke, I don't know, six months ago about how if you want to trap Jenny Harrington, put a dividend under a box and prop it up, right? <laughs> which was really good. But you bring up a really good point. You can't just buy a stock. Remember that, Josh? That was a good one. So, but you can't just I love buy how a you turned into like Cookie Monster for dividends. I know, I know. It's great. But, you know, I run a screen every week. There's 330 companies publicly traded right now that have over a three and a half percent yield. Most of them aren't great. Do us a favor then, because uh, we didn't get to a lot of names, um, Madiv and Magellan, National Retail Properties. You can go ahead and tweet those out okay. to our viewers as well so that they can get an idea of your best ideas. Bob, that was great. Thank Pleasure. you so much. Thank you. Yeah, that's Bob Pisani. Up next, our chart of the day. One retail stock is pulling back on disappointing sales data. We bring you the name, we give you the trade, and we do both next. Our chart of the day now is Costco. The stock is lower today. March, same store sales falling 1.1%. Stock's getting hit pretty good today, too. Ten bucks, about a 2% decline there. Josh Brown, what, what are your thoughts here on a stock like Costco? I don't have very deep thoughts on Costco in particular, other than to point out that one of the, the big things that we've been talking about for a while is how the consumer is really the best part of the economy. Um, I don't even think that that would be necessary for this stock to be okay, because even in an environment where the consumer is faltering somewhat, um, Costco's got a stickiness to its business model. If you're paying a membership fee, you're probably shopping there regardless of what the headlines in the Wall Street Journal say. So I don't know that it's as economically sensitive as people make it out to be. I think the stock is fine. Some are wondering, though, Jim, if it's a I mean, UBS says, is, is it the canary? in the coal mine, right? This is sort of one of those kind of tried and true things. I mean, that's a legitimate question to bring up. Um, And the answer is, unfortunately, we don't know. And here's why we don't know. I mean, if you look at these monthly figures, they're all over the place. December was terrible, right? January was fabulous. I'm not just talking about for Costco. I'm talking about retail sales in general. February was was kind of okay, And now maybe March is going to look not so good. But the problem is these monthly figures, it's hard to figure out what's the signal and what's the noise. So to your question, Scott, it very well could be the canary in the coal mine. Ultimately, what this is, the answer is going to depend on is employment. It's going to depend on whether jobs continue to get created. Weiss, is that how we should think about this? Canary in the coal mine, perhaps, as UBS is asking the question today? They do have a buy. By the way, let's be clear. Yeah. They reiterate their buy, and they have a $575 price target. They're asking the question. They're not suggesting it is. Yeah, look, I, I love the company. I mean, to Josh's point, membership and and they just have a lock in the market. Sam's Club competes. But the canary in the coal mine story goes to, if you look at the details of the quarter, discretionary spending and large ticket items hit a wall. So the inventory is a little off, but it shows the consumer is starting to be not so resilient. And I think that'll continue to be the case. All right, we're going to come back and give you an update on our Halftime Stock Summit. We're going to look at how Jenny's top ideas for 2023 are doing so far. I can tell you a top idea of hers about, I don't know, five minutes or so ago is doing quite well right now. Easterly Government Properties, one of her top dividend picks. 
up 5% as we speak. We're out. We're back after this. All right, we're into Q2, as you know, finishing up Q1 Stock Summit. We haven't gone over these with you. Your picks for the year, both three stocks and then a sector. B&G Foods, huge winner, up 39%. Uber, up 28%. Talk to me about that, because Josh owns that too. I want to hear. Well, actually, I didn't pick it. I picked it for the same reason I chose B&G and Kohl's, which was I thought going into this year, all three of these were really, really oversold. Mm -hmm. But then where Josh and I really agree is looking out to 23 and 24, you have this huge free cash flow generation start to kick in. So they'll start to generate, I think, 2.2 billion in 23, 4 billion in 24, that's enormous. As you've seen interest rates go up, competition, their competition in Lyft and companies like that have had to start to actually get serious and try to be profitable. And that really takes a lot of competition out of the market. So Uber in its sheer scale and size ends up being an enormous winner. So you've got a really professionally well-run company that's getting that's getting profitable. Josh, and was is, oversold. Is is Uber something that you want to stay with? I mean, the 28% in the quarter, obviously great. Has the story turned? enough that this is going to be now the winner in that space and and by a large margin yeah they they won it's over um i never thought (laughs) i would see the day where the duchess of dividends gets into my uber i'm very excited about this Um, (laughs) all right relax relax all right no i'm just I, i i would i would just say that this is in my opinion if given enough time this has the potential to be a hundred billion dollar market cap um, stranglehold over what they do. Most of the regulatory stuff is now in the rearview mirror. Most of the labor issues have been resolved in very big states like California. Um, mm-hmm. And now, with less competition and less available capital for new entrants, they kind of have it. And between Eats and, and Rides, these are both um, going to be good businesses. I don't think Eats is a great business. Uh, I think it's an okay business, but it has potential to get better. Again, because you don't have eight uh, competitors now, you have like two. Right. So, and, and rides they and rides they pretty much own. So I, I like the stock a lot. Okay, I got I got 30 seconds before I got to take another break. Financials, that was your sector pick. You want to have that one back? <laughs> Yeah, I definitely would not go back to it. No, I think it's okay. One of the things people forget is that the financial sector is a lot broader than just banks. And so when I chose this, I looked at I looked at earnings growth versus valuation. It was the most compelling of the, all the sectors. You know I don't like investing on a sector basis. But why don't you just say, no, I, I still believe in the financials. Oh. Why, why would you say, yeah, I'd like to have it back? You don't, oh, do you no, think that this- Oh, no, because I would much rather just have a winner there. So if yeah, I come back, I said it joking. Not everything's going to be a okay, winner, you know but what do you, what do you think for this space going forward a week ahead of earnings? Okay, from this point in time, do I want to own the financial sector? Yes, absolutely. Why? Mm. Because so many things in it are grossly, grossly oversold. Oh, okay. All right, final trades after this break. Quick look at our chart of the day, and there it is. It is Easterly, DEA, one of Jenny Harrington's top dividend plays. Maybe the only time you want the DEA knocking on your door <laughs> is one. to look at Easterly <laughs> with one. a very nice gain. Uh, so we'll keep our eyes there. Let me tell you what's coming up uh, today, 3 o'clock, on the closing bell as well. You want to know what hedge funds are doing? Goldman's Tony Pascarello is going to be here. He covers them. He's going to tell you exactly what is going on. Former Fed Governor Fred Mishkin with me, too. Joe T on Costco, Stephanie Link. We got 30 seconds before the end of our program. Steve Weiss, quick with a final trade, please. Stay with what's working, United Healthcare. All right, Josh Brown. Breakout in progress on Oracle. Uh, okay. Farmer Jim. 
Steve and I agree on something. Healthcare, CVS. Oh, well. Wow. Jenny. <laughs> Pioneer, 11% dividend yield. <laughs> you could do it next show. All right, guys, I'll see you in a couple. Uh, the exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.